This is Larie Daniel Favors, and welcome to The Hub. I'm really excited about this conversation with my next guest, Naveed Shah, political director of Common Defense. Uh, this is an organization that you may not have heard a lot about, and we are hoping to completely change that today. Uh, Naveed Shah is a veteran of the U.S. Army and Operation Iraqi Freedom from Springfield, Virginia. After serving on active duty for four years, including a 12-month tour in Iraq, he returned to his hometown uh, for his undergraduate studies and began volunteering with veterans groups, which led to a legislative and advocacy fellowship. Uh, and quite frankly, he has been amazing ever. I mean, before then, but quite his, when you read his bio, uh, absolutely amazing. Uh, he had a fellowship with the Iraq and Afghan veterans of America in 2016. Uh, the first lady invited him to attend President Obama's final State of the Union address in recognition for his years of work on veterans issues. And as an army brat, I'm already grateful for the work that he and his organization are doing to help those who serve. Naveed Shah, it is such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for being with us today. Hey, thank you so much for having me and that warm welcome. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, for those who are learning about your organization, Common Defense, for the first time, talk to us about the work you do and why this work is so very important right now. So Common Defense really started in 2016, actually, as Veterans Against Trump. Uh, and after the 2016 election, uh, you know, the, the founders realized that this was not just a flash in the pan. This had to be a sustained movement for at least the next four years. Uh, and since then, we've trained more than 200 veterans in organizing and how to go and be activists in their local community uh, and to advocate for the issues that they care about uh, through our Veterans Organizing Institute, which is a, you know, a, a program that we run. Uh, you know, veteran organizers like myself train uh, new veteran organizers to come in and uh, get the experience that they need to, to go out and really represent their community. And, and we do all of this work because we feel like we took an oath to the Constitution when we enlisted in the military, uh, and we have to continue serving our country in you know, whatever way it feels right. And, and for many of us, uh, seeing the way that things have been going in our country, uh, we know that it, we can be better, right? We had that pursuit of, of, of a better union for us is something that uh, we always want to continue to pursue. And so that's why you know, we, we started Common Defense and what we're continuing to do today. You know, the idea of training veterans to be organizers, I it, it does my organizer heart really a lot of good. I gotta be honest with you, because we, there's this weird thing, I think, that happens um, for people who are not um, either enlisted themselves or, or who are not a dependent uh, or someone who is serving is we kind of pigeonhole service members in this weird little box when it comes to politics. And it's like, well, your service is sort of uh, by default a political act. And we don't often think about who are soldiers are outside of their service. And so the idea of soldiers having political uh, leanings, you know, when Veterans Against Trump uh, first formed, I heard the day, but I said, whoa, now that's something because it's an amazing thing uh, to be able to see veterans and soldiers outside of sort of these narrow boxes that we put them in. When it comes to engaging in politics beyond just the service, what roles are you seeing veterans, uh, be they organizers or folks who are affiliated with your organization, what roles 
roles do you see them filling beyond their immediate uh, service uh, that are helping to really round out conversations about political engagement, uh, particularly for a group that is so often left out of those discussions? Yeah, so let me me back up a second and to your earlier point that, you know, people do have a certain idea of what a veteran is or who a veteran is in their mind, right? And it's usually not people like me, people named Naveed, right, are are usually not the first type of veterans that you think of. Um, And that's something that we're we're changing, not only, you know, as as an organization, but the military itself, the fastest growing segment of veterans are actually women and minorities. Mm. Uh, And that's because of of the way service is set up and and the opportunities afforded through service. Uh, You know, people like myself, I joined uh, partly because I wanted to serve my country after 9-11, but also because I I saw an opportunity for me to be able to go to college uh, after serving in the military. So Mm. there are folks like me who who join and, and where our role really fits into this after our service is to continue to use our voice as service members, as veterans, uh, because the general public understands what service is, you know, and, and America itself uh, has this, you know, veneration for veterans, and they want to continue to to respect their service. And so, when we go out and knock on doors, or when we go out and uh, talk about these issues that we care about, people are more likely to listen because it mm. affects veterans. And, and all, a lot of these progressive issues that we talk about every day they affect veterans too. There was a report just uh, last month that uh, more than 160,000 military families are on food stamps. And so when- Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Whoa, I'm sorry. How many families did you say? At least 160,000 military families. This is a report by the AP. Yeah, and and when when the other side talks about things like, you know, entitlements as they call them, like food stamps or SNAP, uh, their, their argument is always that you know, these people are lazy, they don't work hard, they don't uh, want to want to work, and they just want to live off the government uh, benefits. But are we calling military families lazy and not hardworking? Mm. That's not the case at all, right? Military families are a, you know, a, a segment of this a group of people who work hard every day in America and, and are still left to, to fight for scraps. And if we can't lift up our military families, how can we possibly lift up uh, you know, everyday Americans. And so mm. that's where uh, our voices tend to say that. Whether it's change, whether it's uh, police reform, um, you know, whether it's uh, the DOD, but all these affect everyday people. And if you respect the military, care about the troops, then fixing these issues is going to help them too. Now, one of the things that we often hear about, and I'm, I'm sorry I had to interrupt you, but I was just absolutely shocked by, by that number because that is yeah. staggering. Uh, and I, I'm so glad that you were able to help dispel the myth about who is in need of these types of social benefits and the fact that people who are literally putting their lives on the line uh, have families who are still so financially uh, disempowered that they have to participate in programs. Uh, that, to me, I think really says a lot about the inequities in this country and about how much much. Uh, you know, we, we talk a lot about loving the vets, right? We talk a whole lot about loving the troops. Right. Uh, but as someone who, who's fought, my father was in Vietnam and I've seen what Agent Or, I've seen all of the, oh yeah, we love the troops when we can deploy you. But then when you come back home, often we are not there for you, we as a nation. Um, so I'm really grateful for you helping to expound on that and to break that down. When we talk about veterans coming home and, and the troops coming home, one of the things that we'll often see are marketing campaigns that talk about all of the transferable skills 
skills that veterans have. And I, I think that is a, a phenomenal thing because we, again, we pigeonhole uh, our service members in a way that is does us all a disservice. Talk to us about the skills that veterans bring to the organizing space when it comes to things like fighting for voting rights, fighting for equity, and, and fighting for a better nation. How does the training that you receive as a service member better prepare you to engage in the organizing work that your organization, Common Defense, is, is so committed to? The biggest transferable skill for every veteran, whether they were an infantryman or whether they were a, you know, a Black Hawk pilot or uh, like myself, I was a public affairs specialist, right? Uh, the biggest thing that translates for us is leadership, uh, is being able to come in, walk into a room and kind of take charge, honestly. And a lot of times organizing is about being able to present uh, your ideas in a clear, thoughtful and decisive way. I feel like a lot of times where, you know, political movements get lost is they don't have, they lack the leadership. And so we saw, kind of saw that happen. If you remember way back with Occupy Wall Street, mm. uh, you know, that was a, a political movement that had steam, that had grassroots power, had uh, a lot of great ideas, but because it lacked the leadership, it, it kind of fizzled out. Um, and so here we are, you know, eight, nine years later, uh, still kind of dealing with the same problems. But mm. where we see the difference is that veterans can come in now um, and be the forward-facing, you know, lead from the front uh, kind of folks who will take these issues and be able to drive home the point that we need voting rights because we fought to defend the Constitution. And now we're coming home and you're telling us that you're making it harder for us and our families to vote. That's not going to stand. That's not what we fought for. Mm. And what reception are you receiving? I know that people tend to be more open, as you said, when, when it's a veteran talking to you, people, you know, say they love the troops and people tend to be more receptive. But when it comes to concretizing your advocacy in the realm of voting rights, are you finding that that is also well received, particularly when it's coming out of the mouth of someone who has served? Yeah, absolutely. There are a lot of great groups who are in this voting rights fight with us and have been since the beginning of this year when it, we were fighting for H.R. 1 or S. 1, which was the For the People Act. And now with this current iteration, the Freedom to Vote Act, as well as the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, uh, there are many different groups who are who are you know really great about, you know, including us and including our voices. Uh, and what we find is that People are very excited to hear from us, especially fellow veterans. And, and just a couple of weeks ago, I talked to a veteran who told me, you know, I served in Vietnam just like your dad did. Uh, he came, he said, I came home, I took off the uniform, never put it on again, never talked about it again. I've been voting as a Democrat, you know, ever since. And no one has ever reached out to me the way you all have as a, as a, mm. as a fellow veteran. No one has ever made me feel like my service mattered. Right. And that's mm. what happens a lot of times with folks, especially previous generations. We, we are we don't realize how lucky we actually are in, the, in my generation of the post 9-11 veterans that America does care. and America does, uh, you know, kind of hold us to a, to a, to a higher standard because when Vietnam vets came home, they were spit on. Right. And, that's right. and that's not, I understand why that kind of stuff happens because the Vietnam war, obviously just like Iraq uh, in many ways was not a, a, a just war. Um, but, it's not the fault of the service members who, in many cases, were just doing what they had to do. Uh, and mm. so for us now to have this opportunity to change this narrative, to bring people back into the fold uh, and to show them that we don't just pay lip service like the right does. The, you know, the GOP will hold up veterans as props any chance they get. But then as soon as it's time to actually take care of the troops or do 
uh, the things that they're asking for, they, they just they drop them immediately. So this mm-hmm. is a, an opportunity for us to really show that we care more deeply than just to, you know, just with the flyovers and the and the uh, military homecomings at the football games. We're, we're mm-hmm. much more uh, invested in our communities than, than that. Right. It's more than the ticker tape parade, guys. <laughs> this is this is life and death stuff. Yeah. One of the things that I, I really appreciated about the work that your organization does is you seem to have a clear eyed ability to connect uh, excessive use of militarization internationally with the militarizing of police units uh, here in this country. And you have uh, on your campaigns page, you have end the forever war, which is that uh, a decades long war uh, that many know of as, you know, the war in Afghanistan. Uh, stemming from 9-11, which we know, you know, there's been the recent withdrawal. And so I there has been some sense of finality to that uh, particular uh, to, to that particular military reality, even though we know that that is still ongoing in many ways. But the war on our streets campaign is something that I'd like to talk a bit more about, uh, because you have uh, on your site indication that, you know, militarized police are acting like an occupying army and treating peaceful protesters like enemy combatants. Talk to us about why your organization chose to take on the over-militarization of police forces here as one of its core campaign issues? Well, so this is, you know, a little bit personal for me that I remember way back in, I think, 2014 and 2015 with Ferguson and Baltimore, seeing the things that were happening back then, I, I, I was, you know, I felt like I had not seen that kind of uh, war since Iraq, and for mm. us to see it on our streets here at home was terrifying. It's scary, uh, and I realized that why are these cops dressed the way I was dressed when I was, you know, in Iraq? Why are they? Why mm. do they have the body armor and the tanks and the weapons that look like they're in a war zone? And it, I, as I did more research, I realized it's because they're getting it from the military. Uh, this withdrawal from Afghanistan, all of that military equipment, where is it going to go if the military is not using it? It's going to go, you know, the Pentagon has a program called the 1033 program where they will literally give uh, local police departments, you know, a sheriff's department in Podunk, um, Minnesota, can get uh, a mine-resistant ambush-protected vehicle because they often face mines and ambushes in, you know, outside of uh, Minneapolis and Minnesota, right? It just doesn't make <laughs> sense. Um, and, and when you see that kind of stuff used, what it does is it puts the police in an us versus them mindset. So rather than the community policing, which has its own problems, but is still a better uh, process than, you know, confronting protesters as if they are uh, an occupy, as if the police are an occupying army, right? That is really dangerous. And that's what has led to a lot of the violence that we see at these protests. It's not the protesters, you know, going out and looking for trouble. It's the police gearing up like they're dealing with a violent mob. And when you do that, you know, you're, you're kind of, you go looking for trouble, you're going to find it. Um, and so mm. where, where I see this change really happening is first and foremost, demilitarizing the police, getting them to take a step back from dealing with every citizen as if they are a dangerous armed criminal, which is not the case. Right. Mm. Uh, and it, especially when it affects black and brown people at way higher rates than uh, than other people. Um, and so demilitarizing the police for us is not just about the equipment. It's also about the mindset that these, that police officers have. And many police officers are former veterans, right, are former service members. Uh, and right. so they 
a lot of them come back and want to continue serving their communities and they don't want to deal with uh, their, the public like this. They just feel like they're, they're forced to because that's how their chain of command does it. So we feel like it starts at the federal level by ending the 1033 program uh, and uh, taking back this military equipment, right? So that police don't necessarily need to deploy it for every protest. And sure, they might need to have some sort of equipment on standby for an emergency situation, uh, but that, that should be few and far between, and that shouldn't be every police department. Maybe that's just the state police. There, there are a number of different solutions here where we can, can, we can balance security with the freedom and autonomy that people are supposed to have in this country. I'm in conversation with Naveed Shah, uh, who is breaking it down about his organization, Common Defense, and the role of veterans in addressing issues of equity and justice, social justice here in this nation. Uh, now, Naveed, one of the things that we have seen a lot, and in particular as a, with regards to policing and the connection between police and the military, there has been a number of reports, uh, most importantly, reports coming from the FBI that talks about uh, police force and military uh, forces being breeding grounds or spaces where uh, white nationalists and people who have white supremacist inclinations are able to secure the training that they need uh, in order to carry out uh, other forms of violent acts against people of color, communities of color, uh, communities that they have otherized. What are your thoughts on how our our government should be addressing this issue within the military and by extension the police forces where we are seeing that sort of hyper-militarization and that bringing home of the occupation mindset into local American communities? Yeah, so this is something, extremism in the military is something that the military knows is a problem, and it's known for a long time. Uh, after what happened here in Washington, D.C. on January 6th, the insurrection uh, we knew that a, a disproportionate amount of those, you know, insurrectionists, those those protesters were uh, former military, or some of them were active military and and police. Um, and so what what we found, and one of my good friends, Christopher Goldsmith, has done a, a, a extensive research into this. And it, the fact is that these kind of extremist organizations not only go out recruiting, but they act, they actively target veterans and, and military members to join their ranks. Uh, and the, the reason they do this is because of what we talked about earlier, the, the leadership skills and the military training and skills that, that you know, veterans have. They wanted to use those, um, those skills. And again, because veterans come home and uh, some of them feel lost, some of them feel like they, they've lost that sense of purpose. They don't know what to do uh, when they become civilians again. Uh, and an, an organization like this reaches out, suddenly they find that, that sense of purpose. And even mm. if they weren't, or had no inclination of being an extremist or a white supremacist or whatever you, you want to call it before, now that they've gotten a few friends who are on board, they're like, well, you know, this is fine with me. As long as, as, long as these people care about me, I can, I can you know, work with them. Uh, and that's where these extremist groups really go, go to work is, is bringing people into the fold and making it feel like we're the only group who's looking out for your best interests. Mm. Um, and that's where the military, the Department of Veterans Affairs, community organizations, even groups like mine are trying to overcome the, that that's you know that kind of propaganda and show veterans that that's not the only way. And then in fact, what what these groups are are advocating for is treason, right? They're they're going after the very right. foundation of our democracy. 
Um, and so we have to, you know, go against that. We have to not only stand up in, uh, for our country, but also for our fellow uh, Americans. Like the military is one of the most diverse um, organizations in the, in, in the world, right? It, it, it really right. is. And as I said earlier, the fastest growing segment uh, of the military are women and minorities. Uh, so for, for folks to leave that environment where it's all, we're all one color, we all wear green, right? Uh, to, to come out and say, well, actually, now I'm uh, white supremacist, it go- goes against everything the military stands for. And when they're confronted with that, when they realize that how wrong they are, many of them do kind of, you know, take a step back and say, this is not, this is not the right way. Uh, but it's about being able to reach them because once they're, once they're in that hold, they are very, very stuck. They feel trapped uh, mm-hmm. and it can be very difficult to get out. So that's the work that we have to do. Uh, and, I, and I'm glad to see that, you know, with, um, Secretary of Defense Austin and, and others in President Biden's cabinet, they're working hard to kind of change this narrative and change the, the way things are currently running and taking this extremism threat seriously. Um, but I'm hoping that they will work faster because if January 6th was any indication, uh, you know, it's a serious problem and we really need to deal with it quickly. You are so right, Naveed. It has been a real pleasure having you here. I hope we can get you to come back because I think hearing directly from veterans who are on the ground doing the work of converting those skills that you learned uh, in your training and on the battlefield into organizing for social justice here back at home, I think that is a powerful thing. Uh, And it's one of the reasons I was really glad to see your organization flourishing the way that it is. Thank you so much for being here today. I hope we can get you to come back. 